We're gonna start it. We're gonna start it now, okay? Yeah, we're recording. Yeah. Hey guys, this is Person About Town. Today we're with the writer and all-around cool guy, Avi Steinberg. Hey guys, how's it going? Who am I talking to? <laughs> all right. Well, um, welcome to wherever we are. You don't even know where we are yet. Well, tell, tell them where we are. Okay, we're at uh, the Prudential Tower. Uh, in downtown Boston or wherever this is. I think it's Copley Square. And we're about to go all the way to the top of this tower where we will look down and talk about what we see. Okay. Um, but you're not going to see it all. <laughs> so we're just going to have to tell it. We're going to have to explain it to, to all you guys, right? Yeah. That's how it goes. All right. all right. So let's try to go and see if they're going to be jerks today. Okay. Are we allowed to curse? Of course you're allowed to curse. It's my podcast. Okay, yeah. We're cutting through uh, what seems to be a lot of conferences and going in one section oh, of a rotating door. We did a, this is a mistake. We're both in the, in the rotating door at the same time. This is probably bad, yes. Okay. Now we have to talk our way into this place. That's just the way it goes. Maybe you should put that down. Okay, we're going to stop for a second. We're going to hide this low. Hello. Hello. You want to go up to the top of the pub? One idea, yeah, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Still on? Yeah, we're still rolling. So I wrote down my full name with my middle initial. Wait, what's your middle initial? Very uncomfortable. My middle initial is S, which means that my initials are A S S. That's true. <laughs> That's actually true. Uh, and I don't like to see it in print. <laughs> Understood. So wait, you're not. It's not going you're not from America. Where are you from? What does that mean? <laughs> I was born in another country. It's okay. true. What is that? A crime. <laughs> I was born in Israel, in Jerusalem, when I was five years old. I'd had enough. Yeah. No, no, no. I was, a, I was born a citizen. My parents were born in America. They're American citizens. They were born in Missouri, which is in America. So you said you were sick of it at five. What was it like? 52, I think. 50, up, two. What was the question? <laughs> you said you were sick of it at the age of five. Oh, yeah, yeah. We moved uh, at the age of five to Cleveland, Ohio, from Jerusalem to Cleveland. Which is a really weird move, very strange place, very strange move to make. Wait, what was the question? Just where? That was the answer, right? So Cleveland when I, at five, and then uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts at thirteen. So I was, I was, I grew up in the in the Jerusalem, Cleveland, Boston area. Yes. That means we're just going to have to wait for an indeterminate amount of time. She said it could be 15 minutes, or it could be less than 15 minutes, or it could be more than 15 minutes. That's, yeah, I'm just quoting exactly. her. That's just a quote. <laughs> I wouldn't have put it that way myself. Probably, yeah. So since you moved to Boston when you were 13, yes. you've lived in quite a few places. How has that gone, and why did you end up coming back to Boston? Uh, back to Boston from... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I went, I, I grew up in, like, so then we moved to Boston, I went to high school here, and then I went to college here, and then I moved around a little bit to Philly, Philly and uh, D.C., um, a little bit in New York. Uh, why did I do that? I don't know. I have no idea why. And why did I come back? I really, I really don't know why. <laughs> I guess it's just sort of like a default, a default position, this place. Okay. Not that I don't love it here. But, you know. Um, you say that as you're preparing to leave the city. I, I'm thinking about leaving the city. Ah. Um, this is a small uh, inbred town. 
Uh, I do love it, though. <laughs> Inbred, is it interesting? A little bit, yeah. I feel kind of cut off here. It feels a little bit like like we're in the middle of nowhere in Boston. Yeah. Boston, the city of Boston. Provincial, yeah. Okay. Uh, compared to No, I love Boston. Compared to New York, yeah. Okay. Um, um, so, oh, this line is moving, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, when did you start writing your first book? Well, tell them about that. Right. Well, I okay. So this is a Boston story. I uh, at some point after college, I came back to Boston and I got a job as a librarian in a prison. Um, and then I worked that job for about two years as a librarian in a prison. And then I left that job for a variety of reasons, um, including that I was going crazy, <laughs> being the most important one. And then uh, I wrote a book about that experience, the working in the library in the prison, not as much the going crazy part, although that came up also. So that's when I started writing that book. But that was like after, I guess that was a few years ago, like 2008 or something. Um, and then I got a book deal. And then it's just been like fame and fortune since yeah, then, yeah. You're, you're really famous. It's a lot of money, a lot of money. <laughs> you're super rich. So you're going to be paying for this, right? Uh, yeah, I'm going to be paying for this <laughs> in a variety of ways. And, yeah, I don't know. And then, actually, before then, I was, I was working as a reporter, you know, for the Boston Globe. What were you reporting on? Just city shit, you know, interesting city stuff. I really learned the city very well uh, when, I, when I was doing that. I learned all the different neighborhoods. I met a lot of interesting people. It was really an education. It was very cool. That's when I really started to appreciate the city, actually, was when I was working as a reporter. I was, I was writing for a section called City Weekly, which no longer exists, which is very sad, because it's really a, it was a cool section. It was one of the more popular ones, although I guess not popular enough. <laughs> uh, not as popular as the obituary section. Um, but it was just like city features, like interesting stuff going on in the city. And I, I was able, you know, the reporters were able to come up with the stories so it's just like whatever was interesting, just write about, you know, a thousand words, it's fun. Nice. And it's a good education also as a writer to be able to, like, to write on deadlines and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, my first piece that I wrote for that was about a park ranger who worked in the city. So like a city park ranger who showed people around, what was it, um, like Faneuil Hall and the like historic sites down in downtown Boston. Um, but he was blind. I guess he still probably is. <laughs> uh, uh, but at the time that I was writing this piece, he was, this, he was this guy who was giving tours of these historical sites, but he was completely blind. He, and he was blind from birth. He had never seen these things, and yet he was giving tours of them. Uh, and he was just an amazing, amazing guy. His name is John Manson. And I just remember sitting with him for hours talking about Boston, talking about all kinds of things. And uh, it was just a really cool story. So. When I was doing that, and I was interviewing him for that, I was thinking, this is a pretty cool job to have. Unless it was total bullshit, you know? <laughs> like he was lying about being blind? I don't know. I watched him do his thing, obviously. And he, was like, he would talk about like, this famous painting from like, you know, revolutionary times. And it was like a painting of George Washington, or whatever his name is. <laughs> and he's like talking about the painting, and he can't see it. It's very strange, you know? but he pulled it off. And it was interesting to watch people watch him because it's not like he announces himself, oh, I'm a blind guy. So m some people pick up on the fact that he's, that he's blind right away, but some people don't actually notice until like half an hour into the presentation. They're like, wait a second, this guy actually can't see and he's telling us about this stuff. It's kind of comical to see this 
awareness dawn on his audience. Okay. Uh, so anyway, I don't know if he's still working. I hope he is. He's kind of an older guy. He might be retired. But if he's not, I mean, it's worth just seeing him do his thing downtown. Uh, you should talk to him. He's much more interesting than I am. <laughs> um, how long have we been talking about him? Like for about 45 minutes. Yes. I guess we should move on. <laughs> anyway, that was my first piece. And then from then, it was just like, oh, this city's cool. There's a lot of cool people in this city. I'll write about them. Writers are not interesting people. They're, you know I mean? If they're writing about themselves, you gotta be, you got to wonder, which I, I do write about myself a little bit. But. So I've only read part of your new book, but I know that it mentions some things about you. Would you say that this book is more about you, more about what you're trying to discover, or what is the new book about? Can you, and also say the name of the book. Sure, sure, sure. The new book is called The Lost Book of Mormon. And it has a really long subtitle that I don't think we have a l enough time to, to cover. Okay, the subtitle is, let me see if I can get this right. A Journey Through the Mythic Lands of Nephi, Zarahemla, and Kansas City, Missouri. Um, that's, a, that's a subtitle for this book. So as you can tell, the book is not doing very well. <laughs> Since it has, it has, there are words in the subtitle that are unpronounceable and that are actually not even real words. So. Yeah, Zarahemla, Nephi. People don't know how to say those words because they're not real words. I mean, I guess they are real words, but they're not, they're very unusual words. They're like from like, you know, uh, like, like Lord of the Rings or something. They're like yeah. made up, you know? So uh, Mormons don't think it is, they're made up. But anyway, so this book is, a, the book that I wrote is about the Book of Mormon. But my, what I, the way I read the Book of Mormon is a, as an American book. I see it as like uh, the great American novel. So not necessarily as a Mormon scripture, but just as a book about America. Um, so I made a road trip out of that book. I went to all the places that have to do with that book and kind of made a great American road trip. So that's the book. And it does have a lot about me, but it's not really about me. I just, I'm kind of drawing from my own experiences, but only because it's the most convenient thing to do. I have, I, I have, you know, when you're writing nonfiction, you have to get access to things. You have to write about things that actually exist. You can't make stuff up. So it just so happens that I have the most access to my own life. I, I could just draw from it infinitely, and I could say whatever I want about myself without having to worry about offending myself. Uh, <laughs> so it's just convenient to actually draw from my own life. Uh, sort of like a comedian, um, it's not because I'm inherently interesting, but I think as a writer, if you, you should be able to make anything interesting, including your own life. So I do draw a lot from my own life, but anyway, here we go. Okay, we're good to go eat or drink or whatever. Enjoy. Have you been here before? I have never been here before. Oh my God. I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions about it. Yeah, sure. All right. Okay. All right, so you were a reporter for the city, and this is the part, even though you've explored all of the city, this is the part you chose as the place to come here. Yeah. Why? Okay, because this... So guys, uh, the battery ran out, so we're kind of restarting. We're still at top of the hub. Yeah, we, I guess you can call it a take. Uh, we're about to order drinks, but what I asked was as someone who used to be a city reporter, why you chose this place above all the other places in the city? Well, you answered your own question. It is above all the other places in the city. And that's exactly what I like about it because when you're here, this is the whole city. This is like you're in, like this is Boston. You have it in one, like you have it right in your palm, whatever. And 
uh, that's pretty rare to actually be able to see everything all at one time. And that's, there's something very special about that. And you realize that only when you're here. You're like, oh, I'm in Boston. I have all of Boston right in front of me. And there's something really cool about that. It's also just a privilege to be able to sit this high up anywhere. Like, if you think about it, for thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years, people have wanted to sit this high up, and it's been pretty hard to do that. You have to climb a mountain, and we could just come here and have this incredible view. Um, there's something really special about that. So I kind of want just to honor my ancestors who did not have this opportunity. I like to come up here. Yeah, just every single, you know, when you're, when you're really familiar with the city, to be able to come up this high, all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's every single neighborhood, every single street, every single everything you see here uh, triggers some kind of memory or has some kind of story attached to it. So there's something cool, to be, once again, to be able to see it all at once, kind of integrates everything. Yeah. Oh, no, no, good. Oh, we're just recording a podcast, don't worry about it. Oh, it's all right. Right, right. What kind of podcast is it? It's just like a podcast about Boston. She's a comedian. Oh, you are? Yeah. May I say hello? Yes. Hey, how you doing? Fernando. Fernando, how long have you worked at Top Cow? Uh, about one and a half years. Do you like it? Uh, yeah. no, nope. I need my attorney present if I'm gonna, <laughs> if I'm gonna answer that one. Uh, and this is definitely on the record. So what drink would you recommend? Um, <clears throat> do you like martinis or do you like them on the rocks? Mm, I like the on the rocks thing. Uh, I personally, I think I like our uh, mojitos, our mango mojitos, really good. Mm -hmm. It's very tropical. Have you had the cucumber mojito? Yes. It's a, very fresh. It's gonna. It's using a crop organic vodka, and uh, we muddle cucumbers. It's a very fresh tasting drink. I'm gonna have to ask. Sure. Cucumbers are underappreciated. They're very modest, but they bring a lot to the table. <laughs> you know what? I feel that the pickle was. I mean, uh, the cucumber was fine. They didn't have to pickle it. So yeah. I they didn't have to, but that's also a nice thing. Anyway, it doesn't have to be one or the other. We agree to disagree. I'll have a Knob Creek, please, on the rocks. All right, here we are. Okay, so describe kind of the side that we're on and what you're looking at. Okay, yeah, we're looking. We have a very nice view here of Boston Harbor. You can see the Harbor Islands. We can see all the way out into the water. That's the horizon. And then right in front of us, we have Copley Square. We could see the, um, the big John Hancock Tower, which is like a big giant mirror. Um, so basically we could see, we have like a big downtown-y looking area and then all those like low brick townhouse-y looking places that, you know, when you see them, you're like, that's Boston. It's a real Boston look. Uh, and that's um, Back Bay, which is a very nice neighborhood. And then we could also see um, Boston Common, like the big uh, park right in the middle of the city, and uh, the state house, that big gold dome. So it's pretty much, you got everything here. All the bridges, you could even see uh, the Tobin Bridge, which takes you to East Boston. So I guess we're looking east, uh, of course, looking towards the water. And um, yeah, whatever you want, you got it here. It's a good deal. Uh, anywhere you look, you can like think of a memory or something like that. All right, I'm going to point somewhere, and you can tell me something that you remember happening there. <laughs> Here we go. Is that the Westin? <laughs> uh, probably. Yeah, it's a, it's the yeah, the Westin. Oh, I could tell you about the Westin. When I was in high school, um, I went to high school at a Jewish school in Brookline. And I, once again, I just moved from Cleveland. And the big exciting thing about moving to Boston for a Cleveland kid was the independence that you had from uh, 
uh, from ha from driving. You know, if you have this, all of a sudden I had a subway. I could just go wherever I wanted at age 13. It was like really liberating. So in high school, they used to let us leave school during like, you know, like uh, down periods or whatever. And I felt really adult and really cool to be able to get on the T, the Green Line, and come downtown when I had like 45 minutes or more than that, like an hour and a half off or whatever, and just go to go to Copley Square and go to the, actually the Westin. So I bring it up and to sit in the hotel lobby and get like a coffee with my friends. I just thought that was the coolest shit in the world. Uh, and it, when you're 13, and especially when you're from Cleveland, to be able to do that downtown, it just feels really cool. You feel like you're like James Bond or some shit. Um, and just the fact that I was actually like not doing anything wrong. Like this is, I was allowed to be doing this. It, this was like, okay, yeah, you're allowed to get on the tea. You're allowed to go downtown and get some coffee. Uh, it just felt really cool. So, and that's basically Cop Copley Square. And it's like, I used to take the D-line to Brookline Hills. That was my stop for my high school and then come right down here to Copley. So that was the West End Copley. Uh, yeah. All right, Longfellow Bridge. Oh my God. I've been over that bridge so many times because that's, that's the red line that takes you back to Cambridge, which is where I lived, still live. Um, so you go over the red line and you just have that beautiful view of Boston and uh, I've seen the city in every single form from that bridge. You know what I mean? It's sunny, overcast, so these days when you just, it's just total fog, you can't see anything. And there's, it's always a little bit surprising when you go out on the, on the, on the T from Park Street onto that bridge. I know exactly the view that's coming. It's always a little bit of a surprise. There's something very special about that. Um, that's Longfellow Bridge. Yeah, that's it. That's all I got there. Okay. So this is more about like career writing. When did you know that that's like something you wanted to do? Like when you were a kid, did you want to be a writer, or like is it something you just? How did that develop? I think I did want to be a writer as a kid. Although I don't think I realized that you could do that. Like, you were allowed to do that. There's, there's a kid's writer whose name is Avi. He's like a famous kid's writer. And he just goes by Avi, A-V-I. Um, so I was like, I always thought that a guy could do that because he, it's my name and his name is already on the book. It was kind of like I'm basically already there. Uh, so yeah, I think I wanted to do that even at that age. Even when I was listening to his stories like when it was being read to me in school, I always already felt like that was a possibility. But it took a long time to figure out that you actually can do that. It's like actually like a career path. I think it's. I think I, I didn't realize that until I was like 20, actually, that this is like. It's not. I thought for a while that maybe like I would be like a professor or something, like teach books or something. I didn't realize that you actually like there were writers who were like still alive. I thought writers were just dead people. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there was no such thing as a living writer. Um, but then I realized at some point, obviously I'm a slow person, <laughs> that people are still writing books and those people are alive and they're getting paid for it, sort of. Uh, so that was a late realization. But yeah, I think I always wanted to do it. I don't know what else I would do. So looking at the articles you wrote when you got out of college up until the most recent book and even the projects that you're working on now, what would you say has changed about your style? Did you have, like, did you have things you were particularly going for, themes, whatever, that have shifted? I think the style, the change in style has been just a slow, a slow unmasking of myself, <laughs> of the dark truth. Uh, please expand on that. No, I think that I used to, so when I started writing, um, like in college, 
I when I started to be like, okay, I'm maybe I'm gonna actually do this. I, I used to write like short stories, like fiction, and then like newspaper articles, totally separate like parts of myself. Um, and then I realized at some later point that like I didn't really want to do either of those. I want to do something that's sort of like in between. That had like the realism of the newspaper, but the like storytelling, like heatedness and excited in the sort of excited, I don't know, something, whatever the, the heat that comes from like fiction. Um, uh, I wanted to have both of those things. And it took me a while to realize that you can do that, that you could find some, something in between fiction and nonfiction, like newspaper nonfiction. Um, and also just to be able to be funny, like to be able to actually make people laugh and that you don't have to be serious and you don't have to be like responsible. You could actually just be goofy and stupid and just take whatever voice you want and use your actual voice and use the words that you actually use uh, in your writing. It's kind of a revelation, especially when you start writing newspaper stuff and you really actually have to censor yourself. You're not allowed to talk the way you usually talk. You have to pretend like you're not standing there part of the story. And when you write for a newspaper, even though you are part of the story. So I think when you start writing newspaper stuff, you start to move farther and farther away from like the way you actually talk. And I think I had to relearn that. Um, so and I think that took me a while because you kind of train it out of yourself for a while when you write newspaper stuff. And it, yeah, just being able to say you know dirty words and just also to be able to be wrong about things or just to say stupid stuff. Um, I don't know. That was kind of a revelation and a late one. I think that came along with the book, the first book. That I could just write this in my voice. Um, you're not allowed to do that with the newspaper, so that was cool. So based on that first book, what sort of things did you start writing afterwards? And I don't know much about the process of writing, so do you develop stories and then take them to an editor, or does someone like kind of assign you stories? Um, it's a little bit of a both of those. Um, However it happens, you know, you, you develop a relationship with, with an editor here and there at different magazines, and then you start to pitch them stories. That's usually how it goes, is that you come to them with a story, especially when you're first starting out. Um, they don't really know who you are. They, know you, they may, may know you by reputation from a published book or whatever, but they're not going to usually give you a shot to write unless you give them some story that's like they can't say no to. Um, so you have to come to them with the story. But then once you, once you get, have that relationship, they might come to you and think, you know, they might come up with a story idea and they, th and they think of you um, and then they'll ask you to write that story. But usually it's coming from the writers because editors are sitting in an office and their world is so narrow and, you know, writers are out there in the world. And, they ha and also as a writer, you have to write what's interesting to you. And there's nothing that's going to be more interesting to you than what you come up with yourself. I think. Um, so I think in the end you end up pitching a lot more stories than you get assigned. But it, once you get that relationship with an editor, it's a bit of a give and take. It's really just the conversation you have with that editor that goes on you know, over years. You mentioned that there's like a story that they can't say no to. Do you remember your first story for a magazine? Oh my god. Um, yeah. It was for a magazine called the Paris Review. Which sound, I don't know why it's called the Paris Review. <laughs> It has nothing to do with Paris. Okay. <laughs> I guess it was started in Paris after the war or something. Um, but it's not, anyway, I don't know. Uh, so it's called the Paris Review. Um, and it was about a bar mitzvah outing at a West Bank firing range, like a gun range. You, know, you go there, you get guns, you just shoot shit. 
um, and it was in the you know in the West Bank in Palestine, Israel, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> uh, and it was just a group that had gotten together to celebrate this little boy's bar mitzvah. Actually, Americans who had come there to celebrate this boy's bar mitzvah. And one of the things they were going to do for his bar mitzvah was go to this gun range and just shoot the hell out of targets. So I thought this was kind of an interesting story. Um, uh, so yeah, that was my first one. And, and, and you know, when I was when I was when I pitched that story, they're like, I mean, you can't say no to that because who else is going to write that story? You know what I mean? I had the story. No one else was pitching that kind of thing. Um, and it was just you know, it was, it was sort of political, but it was also just funny. And yeah, it was all true too. So it's kind of fun. Yeah. So, what sort of things do you want to write about now? Like you've written two books. You're working on other stories now. What sort of things do you want to explore? I don't know. What do I want to explore? I kind of want to explore a different city. I feel like I've, I've done two things here. What is that? What did you get there? Uh, cucumber mojito. Oh, wow, you actually got that. <laughs> Why would I have not gotten a cucumber mojito? Oh, I thought that was just talk. <laughs> It looks delicious. I thought you were just making conversation. I didn't think you were actually going to go there, but here it is. Um, yeah, cucumber mojito. And it is delicious. Is it? Yeah. Cucumber really is a special vegetable, I think. Do you want to try it? Ooh, that is good. Cucumber is amazing because it, it adds this like special silky chill to whatever you make, especially when you blend it up. Mm-hmm. You put that in some kind of soup, just it adds I've something really like a cold soup. Yeah, like a like a summer soup, like a gazpacho, and it just adds this like coolness and like silkiness. It's just, it's just fucking great. I used to not be into cucumbers. I, I thought they were kind of like a bullshit vegetable. Because I don't have like a lot of flavor, um, and a lot of the times they just feel like filler. You know, people they're just kind of like a cheap thing you could just throw in something to take up space. And I think they are sometimes used as that by people who don't know better. Um, but they could either add that cool chili thing, or if you cut them up really small and put them in things, they have like a crunch. They give you a crunch thing. So you have to know how to use them correctly. But if, if used correctly, um, they're really, you can go a long way with them. So yeah, we can talk about something else now. <laughs> or we could talk more about cucumbers. Do you have any other questions? Are you like a wealth of knowledge about cucumbers? I'm not. That's really- all I have to say about it, I think. So, yeah, more about, like, you said you were oh, yeah. exploring a different city. Yeah, like a totally different city. Um, like, I think about Los Angeles, or like a city that's like a completely different concept than Boston. Um, like, LA is just, it's a, like, there's a different idea there. The city's based on a whole different, like, way of life. Um, so, I think I'm kind of interested in that, going to a place that feels foreign to me. And, uh, and just being like a foreigner somewhere. Even, you know, obviously LA is still an American city, but I guess that's part of what makes it interesting is it's both, it's both familiar because it's American, but, you know, I don't know, it couldn't be more foreign than Boston. So I think that would be cool. Um, also somewhere warm. I guess that has nothing, that's not what I want to write about, but it would just be nice. I think I would write happier things. Would you say the things you write now are sad? They're a little heavy. They don't sound heavy, but 
that's my like talent or whatever is I'm able to figure out how to make stories into like a little bit heavy. Like it always goes to a bit of a dark place. Okay. And uh, why is that? I don't know. I think I'm just like a depressive, miserable person. <laughs> that's why I want to go somewhere where it's like sunny and light, you know, because I feel like I'll just be like more chill if I go to California. <laughs> You know what I mean? I won't go to the dark place. Um, the dark place? Yeah, the dark place. Like, and I think when you live in a place that's like all overcast and moody, it, like, it, it, you know, kind of like allows you to be depressive and melancholic and all that stuff. And I don't know, I kind of want to move past that a little bit. Not getting any younger either. <laughs> How old are you? I'm 35. Do you like being 35? Um, I guess it's better than being dead, but not much, no. No, no, I do like 35. I like, I like the 30s. It's a good age. What have you learned since you were in your 20s? Today is my birthday. I am turning 29. So, like, now you're in your 30s. What do you know that you wish you had known when you were 29? You want me to give you, like, yeah, knowledge? Okay. The moment I turned 30, like, literally the second I turned 30, like, 12 midnight, of t turning from 29 to 30, I felt a, a real load, I felt like a load was taking off my back. I felt much lighter. Because um, I think I, f I felt like I was striving a lot when I was in my 20s, and I felt like th the striving was over a little bit. I felt like when I, in my 30s, I could just work really hard at what I was doing and start to just get better at it but not be striving and not worrying, is this really what I should be doing or am I really gonna be able to sustain this? I was like, no, this is what I'm doing, this is who I am. I don't have to apologize for it, I just need to do it, you know? And there's something, yeah, not having to ask permission for things and not having to like wonder so much about the future, just being able to, to actually be, to have arrived somewhat at what it is I wanted to, to do. I felt like that happened the second I turned 30. Um, I just felt happier immediately. And I realized also in retrospect, the 20s were not a very happy time. It's supposed to be sort of like everything is possible, you're young and the whole world's in front of you. And um, I don't, maybe that is a happy thing for some people, but for me that was just sort of like, it felt like a burden. Um, and now, even though the, my, my, your world gets a little bit smaller as you get older and the options start to get more limited, it doesn't feel, it doesn't scare, it's not scary when you get older. It's actually kind of exciting. You're like, all right, this is what I'm doing. This is, I chose to do this. I'm good at it. I'm going to get better at it. And that's kind of exciting. So it's, it's better not to have the world as your oyster or whatever that is, you know. <laughs> it's better to give up on your dreams. Thanks. Thank you for that. I'll, I'll give up on my dreams. <laughs> um, but... I think the 29 and 30, that age is, is really good because you still do have that, like, you're, you still do have one foot in your, in, that, in your 20s, but you're not. You're like, you're in the good end of the 20s. So 29 to me is a great age. I really do mean that. 28 and 29 both are just fun. So, yeah, like, you're, you've got the seniority of, your, in, in the, of the 20s set, you know what I mean? It's like being a senior in high school or college, you know, you're a senior. That's cool. <laughs> you got to figure it out. So. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> with my life, with my whole life. I love being 29. It's a great age, but I'm also glad I'm not it, as I said. <laughs> so, good luck with it. Tell me how it goes. I'm curious. Right, I'll, yeah, I'll keep you posted on my, my life.
your family lived in Boston, if it was someone who was visiting you who wasn't your family, where would you be like, holy cow, we have to go there? In Boston. You're saying, where would I take someone in Boston? Yes. I don't know why I had trouble with figuring out <laughs> that question. I think I'll just, I, you know, I just love walking around the city because it's not a very big city. It's really compact. Like, if you walk around for 45 minutes or an hour, you can kind of see a lot of the city. You really can see a lot of it. So I think I would just take them to, over to that Longfellow Bridge and just, and just make a big, um, a big circle. Go from the Longfellow Bridge over down to the... Um, to the MIT, to, to the Mass Ave Bridge, which goes into MIT. It's just make a big circle between those bridges, and you just see so much of the city, and it's just very, I don't know. It's obviously the good side of Boston, too. You don't see the grit, you know? It's, it's kind of the, um, if you go south, of, you know, in the south, south parts of Boston, um, you know, the big neighborhoods of Boston, and you start to see, like the, you know, the neighborhoods are a little bit more complicated there. But this is sort of the pretty old stuff, which I like. Um, but I guess it's, it's a little bit touristy. But I feel like you can go through the tourist stuff and see it in a different angle, and I think that's kind of cool. I also personally like to see those things with someone new who hasn't seen them, because I've seen these things a million times. But uh, when, you see, when, you, when you see them with someone else, it's kind of, you're seeing them in a different way for the, new, for the first time and stuff, so it's kind of fun for me. It's all about me, so <laughs> that's all I care about. Oh, really? Number one, that's right. One. Yeah, and I'd like to add something to that also. <laughs> You're very lucky to be talking to me. <laughs> you are. You really lucked out. Were, was your schedule so busy, or like, what was it that makes me like supremely lucky to have the pleasure of your company? I'm a really busy man, uh -huh. and it's not just you who's lucky. It's oh. all of your listeners. <laughs> uh, you're really lucky. I am a very busy man. I'm very important. No, I'll tell you why you're lucky to be talking to me um, and not seeing me. That's actually what I meant. You're lucky to be hearing me and not seeing me. Why would you say that? I, the reason why I say that is because it's very simple, very specific reason. And that is um, I have the same voice as Casey Affleck, the actor. We have the same exact voice. Okay, yes, I do. Okay. Right now, splice in Casey Affleck's voice. Thanks, Denise. Um, you know, I feel uh, it, it wasn't any more or less challenging. Um, it was, uh, you know, it wasn't so different than a, a relationship with any other director, to tell you the truth. I've heard this from a number of people, including a professor of musicology, I swear. A guy whose like, job it is to like, think about music and sound. Uh, totally different people, random people, different walks of life have told me, you kind of sound like Casey Affleck. And they told me this before I even knew what Casey Affleck sounded like. I, I thought, okay, I must sound like Casey Affleck. And one day, I was somewhere, I don't know where, it doesn't matter. <laughs> and, um, and I guess the radio was on or whatever, and there must have been an interview with Casey Affleck, because I heard this guy talking on the radio, and I thought, holy shit. It's me. It sounds exactly like me. And I've been on the radio, so I thought, maybe this is like an interview with me. That's weird. Uh, it was not me, though. It was Casey Affleck. That's the truth. So there you go. I fucking sound like Casey Affleck. So if you want to actually conduct the rest of the interview as if you were talking to Casey Affleck. Have you seen many Casey Affleck movies? No. <laughs> So you wouldn't be able to answer any questions. I, no, I'd be. I would. You could. Okay, this is how it would work. You ask me questions as though I were Casey Affleck, okay. and I'll answer you 
as Casey Affleck being like really cagey about my life and career. Okay. You know what I mean? But I mean, because I don't actually know the answers. To that. So I'd have to be like, can we talk about something else? Or like, let's move on. Like, I've talked a lot about that already. All right, we're going to do a small segment where I speak to Avi as Casey Affleck. All right, you ready? I think so. I'll try. Okay. Uh, so while recently you've been praised for some of your more critically acclaimed work, unfortunately some of your past work has gotten a lot of negative reviews. So what are your thoughts on Drowning Mona and how that affected your early career? I would not be the man I am today if not for Drowning Mona. I just want to, put, I want to be on record as saying that, okay? <laughs> Drowning... You're laughing, but I'm, I'm being serious here. Drowning Mona made me as an actor and as a person. Um, I can go on and on about that. I'm not going to, <laughs> okay? But it was very important, and uh, I actually think it was a good film. It was a good picture. I like to call them pictures. Um, but, you know, I, this whole thing about your newer stuff is better, you're such a great actor, you really... <laughs> You really matured, like you're one of our greatest actors. I, I mean, I'll take that, thank you. But I actually think that I couldn't be who I am today, be like the amazing Casey Affleck who you see before you, if it were not for that early stuff. So I, you can't separate them. Thank you, Casey Affleck. You're welcome, you're welcome. All right, okay, back, back to talking to you as Abby. Okay, all right, um, what else did I want to ask you? This is a really good drink. Yeah, I have had can. most of it. Wow. Yeah, go for another one. I might. I have only had... Trash. <laughs> get me completely drunk. It is my birthday. Why not? Um, no, I had M&M's. There's nothing else in my fridge because I'm like preparing for this brunch I'm making tomorrow. So like a dozen eggs. But then I need to go to the store and buy like four dozen more eggs. Oh, it's going to be amazing. What, do you not like eggs? I, I, do, I actually have mixed feelings about eggs. Wait, ha, why would you have mixed feelings about eggs? They're like a completely convenient source of protein. They're delicious. There's so much you can do with them. Oh God, what are you, is this like sponsored by the egg lobby? <laughs> I love eggs. It's what I eat all the time. I try to eat like three a day. My cholesterol, fine though. Wow, this is okay. I guess you're like some kind of special specimen. I do like the slogan, the incredible edible egg. That is kind of amazing. I don't know who these egg people are, but uh, no, the reason I like eggs, I like the way it tastes, uh, I like making eggs, I like them, I like whatever. I like eggs for the same reason anyone likes eggs. I just feel a little bit guilty about, about eggs because who eats eggs, right? What kind, of, what kind of animal eats eggs? A snake, you know what I mean? Like, or like some kind of like thief. Like an animal who steals eggs from another animal is a fucked up kind of animal. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, who would do that? It's so wrong to do that. It's so, like, it's heartless. Yeah, it's heartless to steal eggs from, from someone else. It's a really, it's sick. You have to be, like, a sick kind of animal. And so, like, a, once again, that's, to me, to me, eggs are snake food. <laughs> so I feel a little bit guilty about it, even though they are delicious, especially if cooked correctly. Eggs are very easy to cook, but very hard to cook well. So I just recently found out that you have the ability to cook. I did not know this. So what is one of the correct ways to cook eggs? The cor one of the correct ways. 
I'll tell you what the what the incorrect way is. Okay. Um, once again, you know, this isn't like this isn't new. I'm not I'm not saying something most people, most of your listeners who are very smart and educated people, um, already know. But you, it's very easy to overcook an egg, and when you overcook the egg, it's edible, but um, it's not really that good. And of course, if you undercook it, it's it's dangerous. So getting it right at that sweet spot is actually kind of hard, and it takes confidence. It takes confidence in yourself. It takes a certain kind of swagger. <laughs> you have to be. You have to say this egg is done. Even when some other, some people who lack that confidence would be like, no, 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 the egg is not done. You have to be like, no, I'm telling you, the egg is done. The egg is ready. Um, and that's actually kind of hard because it is a little bit. It's still a little bit soft. It could be even a little bit runny. And some people would not have the courage, but you have to have the courage. And what is your favorite way to eat eggs? With, with a fork. <laughs> That's true. That's a true story. Uh, what is my favorite way? To, I'm sorry I said that. Can we cut that out? <laughs> we can. I probably won't, but we could. Yeah, it is true, though, because eggs actually, I guess eggs would be, I guess if you had to do like a hard-boiled egg, you could eat that without a fork. Um, I, like, I like the scrambled egg. Fried eggs are good. The hard-boiled egg is good for different reasons. A hard-boiled egg is really portable, something really practical about that. But to me, the, you know, that soft scrambled egg is just like, it's just, it's something you do if you have time, you have the whole morning in front of you, you're not in any rush. It just tastes delicious, yeah. Yeah, it's a great way to start the day. And like cheese on an egg is just, that is just so fucking good. Any kind of cheese, you cannot go wrong. All right, so you say any type of cheese, you can't go wrong. What's your favorite type of cheese? I would say cheddar, you know, a good cheddar cheese, sharp cheddar. I don't know why. I thought you would like a more fanciful type of cheese. Because you consider me to be like a fancy pants. (laughs) I wouldn't say fancy pants. I would say you have specific taste. Yeah, I'm classy as shit. That's what you're trying to say. I appreciate that. Um, First of all, you can have a fancy cheddar if you want, and those are good, you know. And I do like the kind of like fancy pants cheeses, although I'm, I have to admit, I'm kind of late to those, you know, like I didn't grow up with that. I grew up with like just simple cheeses, you know, and kosher cheese. I grew up, you know, eating kosher. What's kosher cheese? It's really bad cheese. It's like government cheese. It's, it's shit. But to me, it was great. You know, if you don't know any better, it's great. It's good to cultivate bad taste because then you like everything. When you have bad taste and like you actually think that shitty things are good, it means that you could like anything. You're actually very open to the world. So it's good, you don't want to get too fancy, especially at an early age, because then you actually don't like most things and that closes you off to the world, it's not good. So I grew up with shitty cheese and now I like it all. <laughs> so that's good. Is Boston a city you could see yourself in for a long time? What cities could you see yourself in for a long time? And what are some of the things you like least about Boston? I just spit out my gum, by the way, for the record. <laughs> I've, I had gum in my mouth this entire You're a horrible interviewee. I apologize for that. I really do. What was the question? Oh, yeah, where, what city can you die in? Yeah. Can you see yourself dying in? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say it like that, but sure, let's take it. I think Boston would be a good city to die in. And so like, you say, okay, what city can you see yourself living in for a long time? 
I do. I I can see myself coming back to Boston, and like for my my friends who grew up in Boston, really grew up in Boston. You know, all those kids I went to high school with. Um, a lot of them left Boston, but a lot of them are slowly coming back, and I have a feeling that a lot of them will end up coming back. Boston is like one of those places that people leave but also come back to. Unlike Cleveland, which you know, where a lot of my friends who grew up there are never going to go back. You know, seriously. So there are some some places like that. Um, so I could I could see myself being one of those people who eventually does come back. Boston is a great city, and it's actually better than it's been in a long time. It's it's better than it was when I even first came here, um, in many ways. And so I could definitely see coming back here. I think that's part of the reason why I'm like, I could like shit on it and also feel like, oh, I could leave the city. It doesn't feel like I'm leaving forever. It doesn't feel like it's not that kind of drama. I feel like I will probably come back here at some point. It will always be here for me. And, you know, so it feels like home in that way. So I could definitely see coming back here at some point when I've kind of given up on life. <laughs> what does giving up on life mean? When I'm old and tired, my legs have given out, and I'm just like, fuck it. <laughs> Too tired to go anywhere. I could, I'll just sit here. <laughs> um, you know, when I'm just kind of like, I've, I've given up on, not given up, when I've done stuff, when I've already done a lot of what I wanted to do, and now I'm ready to just kind of like put down the roots. I'll try to, be po I'll try to put these in, in positive terms. What are these things that you want to do? Like these things that you need to go somewhere else to do? Oh shit, I, I, was, I was afraid you were going to ask that. What? what? I don't know. That's a good question. I haven't figured that out. I just know that they're going to happen in warm places. Whatever. Sorry, I spit on you. Uh, I don't know. I just figure whatever they are, they can't possibly things are going to happen in Boston. They're going to be the kind of things you do like in L.A., you know, like big stuff that makes money. I don't know. Um, Your books have to be turned into movies. My books have to be turned into movies or better yet, TV. Uh, we are in a golden age of television. That's right. Movies are bullshit. Movies are done. It's too much money. It's too. It's too much of a gamble. They're not worth it actually these days, which is a shame because I love movies, you know. But uh, yeah, TV is where it's at. My first book was actually optioned for TV, and there's still a lot of talk about it being made into a TV show. Of course, I've learned enough about this business to realize that that's all talk. A lot of a talk. This is how it works in, in like LA. You know, you have these meetings, and everyone at the end of the and this is a fun meeting. Everyone's really positive at the end of the meeting. Everyone like. Everyone like is like really positive, and they're like, "That's a great. This is a great meeting." And we talk about how great a meeting it was, but nothing happens because it's hard to make a t TV shows. It actually, it's a production, and a lot of things get talked about and not made. And that's actually the way the business works. So you have to just be ready for that. Um, so it's possible that the TV show get, could get made, but once again, my first book was about a guy who's like doesn't belong in prison who ends up in prison which as we know has it's a tv show very similar to that it's based on a book uh it's called orange is a new black check it out it's a hit show uh that book actually came out the same year as my book came out so it's it's been a real like lesson for me <laughs> in terms of how this stuff works uh i actually you know we had the exact same uh time frame for pitching the show and all this stuff and and that show took, and my show, they didn't even make a pilot out of it. And it's just about, for whatever reasons, and I think part of the reason for that is, uh, to be completely honest, both our books were good books. I don't think her book was necessarily better, or any, or whatever, it was a very good book. Um, but I think it's just about like figuring out how to make it work and getting the right people involved. And they totally got the right people involved there. 
and they got, it's a great show. It's really well written, and it just all worked out. Um, so, yeah, it's it was, it's been kind of interesting for me uh, to to learn how the, how this works. Um, whether or not that helps or hurts is also a separate question, because it actually it, it doesn't mean that like a, a TV show couldn't be made be made out of my book. It's still possible. Um, I actually don't give a shit one way or the other, and never really did. I kind of just wanted it to happen so I could make money off of it. <laughs> I still would like that to happen. I don't know whether it will or not. Uh, we'll see. But uh, yeah, we'll see. But it would be fun to, to give it a shot. Yeah. And in LA, you can give it that shot. Yeah. And there's other shows you could write. I have a couple other ideas for shows. Yeah, totally. I'm not going to give them away. Because, yeah, I know, I know how you people think. Steal my shit. I'm, gonna, I'm talking to a comic now. I'm just going to give away my shit. Sorry. You're going to have to wait. You're going to have to wait. You're going to have to pay for that shit. You guys heard it here first. Uh, Avi, paranoid about having his shit stolen. So don't, I guess. Don't steal my shit. I have lawyers. Do you? Do you have like a team of lawyers? I have a team of lawyers. Nice. I'm a Jewish guy. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, this is what we do. We grew up studying this stuff. We, I studied law when I, was, when I was in fifth grade. Wait. I know that sounds weird, but that's actually true. What kind of law? All the stereotypes are true. <laughs> so I grew up Orthodox Jewish, like serious, intense, like hardcore Jewish, okay? So we studied the, all the like all the ancient texts. And when you when you study the ancient stuff, you're not like it's not like Christians where you're studying like theology and like reading the Bible and stuff. Yeah, yeah. We read the Bible and it's yeah, that's partly what it's about, but mostly what it's about is law. Civil law. I swear to God. That's what the Talmud is about. And you're just studying like civil procedure and civil law. And that's actually what the religious studies, like, that's what it entails. I know that probably makes no sense to you, but that's actually the truth. So because, you know, that's a big part of, you know, the biblical law. It's just like, you know, is actually, you know, how to adjudicate that law. So that's what you end up studying in, in religious studies. So from fifth grade on, we're studying, like, what if my ox goes onto your property and gores, like, your shit? <laughs> So who pays for that, right? So this is an important question, you know. It's torts. It's, it's damages. In fifth grade? Yeah, you start to learn this stuff. I mean, you don't even know what it means, honestly. But since it's considered, like, part of religious studies, you just start learning it. So it's very, it's very deeply embedded. Anyway, my point is this. I have a lot of lawyers. I'm not afraid to use them. Cease and desist is, like, what I, I do that every day. Why are you... Why are you ceasing and desisting every day? I don't cease and desist. I get other people to cease and desist. Uh, it's just, those words just roll off my tongue. So don't fuck with me. So wait, how many lawyers do you know? Oh my god, are you serious? Yeah, why not? You said all of the stereotypes are true. If that is the case, you have to know a disproportionately high number of lawyers. Okay, I'll answer your question. I don't know the, the, the absolute number. I'll have to give you a percentage. Of the people I know, <laughs> me, okay, the people I grew up with, okay, let's say this is the people I went to high school with. I won't even start with college, okay? Just the people I grew up with. So we're talking like wall-to-wall -wall Jewish people. That the I went, until college, I went to just Jewish schools, okay? So we're talking about Jews, okay? I think it's funny that you don't mention where you went to college. <laughs> Do you want me to talk about college? Okay, I went to Harvard. There, there's a lot of lawyers there. I could start, with the, I could start in on that shit, too. <laughs> we can go there. 
Um, no, but I won't go there. Okay. We're just going to talk, because we were talking about the ethnic aspect yes. of it, okay? So all the kids I grew up with and all that stuff, I would say the majority. <laughs> the majority. Let's start with the majority. And the question is, what kind of majority are we talking about? Is it like a crazy majority? Is it like 80%? Probably not, okay? It's more than 50. It's for sure more than 50. <laughs> it could be something like 60. <laughs> but let's be conservative about it. I'll say 55%. 55% of the kids I grew up with are now, are now lawyer, practicing lawyers. They have some kind of practice. Some of them are hotshot lawyers, some of them are, are not. Uh, and you guys know who you are if you're listening. <laughs> but the point is they have, they have law degrees and, uh, and they use them. Yeah. Some of them in this building. We are in the building of Ropes and Gray. Oh, you know Ropes and Gray? Of course I know people are Ropes and Gray. <laughs> ropes and Gray is some hot shit, okay? That's why they're in this building. Just listen to that name, Ropes and Gray. It's an incredible, those two words, just amazing. They're, they're scary sign. The word ropes, that's some S&M shit, yeah? I wouldn't mess with anyone who works at a firm named Ropes and Gray. You do know that the uh, character in Fifty Shades of Gray is uh, last name Gray. That's true. I didn't even make that connection. Is he a lawyer? I think he runs, I didn't read the book, I refuse to because I have some weird stance on it, but uh, I think he does something that allowed him to make millions of dollars, maybe social media. Yeah, he's like some kind of hot, like rich asshole guy who has like some kind of big office and all that stuff. So he might as well work at Ropes and Gray. Yeah. But yes, that, that word gray, something about it. It's like, it's like that, because you think gray suit. I don't know what that word is. That's actually the second movie to have the main male protagonist in an S&M relationship have the last name of gray, other one being secretary. Oh, is that guy named gray too? That's incredible. That's why it's like, uh, you can't rip it off that much, E.L., whatever your last name is. Yeah, yeah, she ripped that off. That's not even her real name. Um, but yeah, something about that about that word gray, I guess. It's also when they, with the British spelling when they do G R E Y. That's the only way. It's so snobby, yeah. But it's like for a name, that's the way to go. I agree. I agree. But the point is this: I know I know motherfuckers are ropes and gray. <laughs> I don't know how, but I do. That's that's what life gave me. So I will use them if you try to rip off my shit. I just want to I want to emphasize that. <laughs> Uh, so I think all of the listeners are now aware. Uh, don't rip off Avi's shit. Uh, we've been talking for a while, so I'm going to wrap it up. Any last thoughts both about Boston, about moving from Boston, about people who should and should not visit here, or, in fact, about where we are, which we haven't really talked to. We've talked a little bit about. A little bit about it. Oh, uh, that's a lot of questions. I think Boston is, is, I think it's a city that's definitely worth checking out. Uh, if you if you haven't, I mean, most people I don't know who's listening to this, but this is a beautiful city. It's worth it's worth it's worth living in actually, not just visiting. It's actually worth living in and exploring. Um, one thing I'm right now, even as I even as I say this, I'm looking out onto the Harbor Islands, these little islands um, in Boston Harbor. A lot of people don't know about those islands. Even people from here don't go to those places, and they're very special. So if you have a chance, you come to Boston, take a ferry, usually like in the warmer months, take a ferry out to the Harbor Islands. It's a very, very unique experience. You should do that. So I guess I'll leave you with that. Go to the Harbor Islands.
All right, there you have it. Go to the Harbor Islands. This has been Person About Town. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Bye. Bye.